Welcome to Bob Got a Microphone, the podcast that exists because I, Bob Tarantino, bought a microphone. There are a lot of interesting people out there, and these are some of their stories. In this episode, I'm talking to Ann Driscoll. Ann's an old friend. We've known each other since we were kids, but we lost touch after high school. So this is a real treat for me to chat with her. To me, it's no surprise that Ann's where she is. She's the CEO of Launchpad, a company that's on a mission to catalyze the growth of entrepreneurship ecosystems in cities across the U.S. And she's a veteran of Silicon Valley who's embraced a life of accomplishment, risk-taking, and engagement with opportunity in whatever form it presents itself. We talk about how she successfully navigates running a business with her spouse, overcoming the challenges that COVID presented to a business model premised on in-person community building, the upside of divorce, and how she managed to get her career to the point where she can say she's the happiest she's ever been. This is her story. All right. Ann Driscoll, welcome. How are you? I'm doing well, Bob. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm happy to be having this conversation with you. It's, it's been an awfully long time since you and I have spoken. So I'm, I'm glad to have the opportunity to catch up. I know. But I feel like it's, uh, it's just old friends. Um, mm-hmm. you, can't, you, can't take those, the, you can't take those memories of the cheese wagon away. Right. <laughs> Literally foundational to who I am today. I'm there you go. Let's explore that. So, actually, <laughs> so, I mean, for the listeners, for context here, so you and I sort of grew up together. I mean, we knew each other starting in like grade three, all the way through to the end of high school. Uh, we were, I think, pretty close friends in high school. And then we went to different universities. I think we were pretty good friends in grade school. I mean, it was you, yeah. me, and Joe, and Mike Rossi on the... Uh, School bus, morning school and bus. night. There you go. Right. Those are <laughs> those are memories that you know you can't sort of. Those are hard to tear apart. So let me give you a, a sort of potted history of Andriscoll's life as I've gleaned it from social media since we sort of went down different paths. So you go to Queens, get your commerce degree. You end up in Silicon Valley, do some work for some interesting companies. You, you worked at Google. You started a bunch of your own companies. Then you start. I start seeing you going to a lot of concerts. Right. You're going to like Burning Man, Coachella. At some point you end up in, I think, one of the either Napa Valley or Sonoma Valley in wine country. You get married in Tuscany. And now you have founded and are running. You're the CEO of another company, yet another company called Launchpad, where you guys are sort of creating communities for entrepreneurs in various spots throughout the U.S. So is there anything that I've mischaracterized there or is that sort of a fair summary of what you've been doing for the last 20 odd years i think you got it pretty well i think you forgot first marriage second marriage so there you go mm. so i'm on okay. i'm on marriage number two right um so trade it up jackpot Trade. <laughs> oh, are you kidding me yeah i chose happiness and nice. uh we accidentally had a baby uh two years <laughs> ago so oh. Nice. I mean, it wasn't entirely accidental, but it definitely was a little bit of a surprise. We sort of had thought that that ship had sailed. And uh, I now I'm running around uh, the CEO of the company with a three-year-old. Fantastic. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty fun. But you're right. I spent 20 years really in Silicon Valley and working at tech companies. And what really precipitated that change was that that move. uh, We were traveling we were doing all this stuff. My husband actually had started the original launch pad and we were like, why uh, am I building? He basically was like, why are you building someone else's company? And I was working for, you know, I think the spate of narcissists that I worked for gave me my 
plus my husband, ex-husband, <laughs> gave me my 10,000 hours in narcissism and codependence. And I sort of decided to stop fixing other people's problems and wanted to kind of go it our own way. And if we we're going to be traveling, we might as well be traveling together. And I think I saw the light at the end of the tunnel, which was I'd been spent all this time in Silicon Valley and very elitist companies and very, you know, I worked with Mark Andreessen and there's not, and Google, and there's not much wrong in saying that, you know, you have to be in the Valley to build a great tech company, but I don't think all companies have to be tech first. They can be tech enabled, which means I think great companies can actually be built other places. Um, and I think, I don't know, maybe I turned 40 and became the softer side of me popped out. And so we're just really passionate about about working together and we call it work-life integration. And yeah, that's that's a good summary of where we are today. So, I mean, let's let's talk about that a little bit more because it, that sort of fascinates me. Like the fact that, you know, your romantic partner, like your spouse is also your business partner because I feel there's, like that can be tough to make work, right? Like I think the, the factors that make a relation, like a, like a romantic relationship work are not necessarily aligned with the factors that make a business partnership work. So... Did you, as soon as you met your current husband, like, were you like, oh yeah, like we're going to go into business together or how did that, how did the idea of going into business together develop? So I think it came over a few years. We were long distance. He lived in New Orleans and I lived in San Francisco and we, you know, through those early years, spent a lot of time talking about business, talking about issues, my businesses, his businesses, whatever that was. And so that, you know, life work always kind of encompassed our conversations and that was just just the stage of life that you're at. We didn't have kids. We had found new partners. So we were building a partnership together and we were kind of building it at the height of our career, really, right? I always think of like that age between sort of 35 and 45 is like, you actually have legitimate experience and you have a ton of energy and enthusiasm for big solving big problems. And you have, you know, unlimited constraints, right? You have enough money, you have enough opportunities and you can and you actually you know sleep and can do a lot of different things right. and so I think that that just by getting together around that time I think there's like a lot of passion that comes from that and both of us always made work a big piece of who we were I think what changed and shifted was really I ended up having a couple interesting stories and some of the challenges that I faced um, I did a lot of turnarounds and so while I think it was generous of you to say that I'd started companies. Oftentimes I was actually put in as an exec to help the company rethink where they were and try and figure out product market fit. And that didn't always jibe with some of the challenges that these sort of very larger than life founders, you know, who sort of thought, that, thought of themselves like I'm the next Steve Jobs. And so, you know, after a couple of years of that and, and some of the just general abuses that come from um, working in those environments, I think Chris got really frustrated, sort of watching the hours go down the tube. And he was like, you you know what, like, you got to, you got to do something different. And I started thinking about starting another company uh, in the fintech space, because I had kind of gone down a fintech route. And I don't know, there was just something that struck that we were like, well, he was starting to travel, we were doing all this work internationally. And we just had this idea that like, maybe we should just work on this together. It'd be really fun. We talk, we talk about it all the time. So if we're talking about it all the time, I might as well like have some control over it. Uh, and that started the getting working together. And you're right. There were a ton of bumps through that first process. Like 
I've got a big ego. He's uh, not used to collaborating. He's always been like the one guy, I can do it all sort of person. He's the, I call him the visionary, I'm the strategist and he's the tactician. And if we put those things together and don't jump on each other's feet, we have learned to do the dance to not have it suck air. But it has, it does suck air sometimes when you're working with your spouse. And frankly, most people look at us and they're like, I don't know how you guys do it. You spent all your time together. Even when you're working on something else, somehow you're in the same room. I'm sure we could investigate that and unpack that uh, about whatever issues those are. But it works for us. And I think we have always approached, and now we're being more deliberate about that. And we're we're being deliberate about this notion of work-life integration. So how do we make sure that we get agency in our work life so we're not stuck working for somebody else and having to work hard and not smart. And at the same time, then get all the benefits of doing that together. So we can, you know, what we've tried to do here is we'll core time for work. And then we always try and go and get on the boat, right. Or go do something fun. And it's not that we don't work hard. It's just, I think we understand kind of we're more reactive to the cycles of work and less stuck in sort of an office situation. I mean, I'm talking to the lawyer. Right. So, <laughs> right. so that's got, you're int- like, I don't understand this. You don't bill hours. Right. Yeah. It's all a little confusing to me, which is why we're having a conversation. Um, <laughs> Embrace so, it. Embrace I, yeah. it. It's the way of the future. <laughs> so that's interesting. I mean, the let's explore that a little bit. Cause I mean, so when I hear sort of integration, I think, okay, so you don't draw kind of bright lines between, you know, when you're quote unquote working or operating the business or, you know, whatever it is that that entrepreneurs do you don't draw bright lines between that and being on the boat and you know tending to family issues and things like that so is that right like the it's all sort of one fluid kind of flow for you guys you're constant i mean i'm assuming given the size of the company you must constantly be having to attend to things well we can get into that in a second but um what i would say is in and this is a unique period of time, but what I would say is in the normal world, we it depends on who you are and what makes sense for you. But I think for us, we aren't very structured. So we're comfortable with fluidity. Other people need more structure. And so if you were say starting a business with your spouse, my recommendation or guidance would be figure out what makes you comfortable. And then some people might want that I'm gonna turn it off, right? And we're gonna be in relationship mode now. and work mode then. And that is really good if you can kind of turn it off and and bring it home. And we certainly try to do that. What we also find is is that we spend a lot of time talking about work, even when we're doing something fun. And that has gotten a lot harder having a three-year-old. And so we hear very often, stop tapping mom and dad. And the thing about it is, is that what we try to do is say, we kind of keep the mundane in the day to day in the day and so if we are on the boat or we are we do a monday strategy hike we're talking about a bigger issue or bigger picture things that we want to talk about or bigger vision or how to solve this big thorny problem and then we try and keep sort of like the just got to get it done stuff for kind of our core work windows does that make sense yeah it makes total sense so actually let's talk a little bit about the company because it's it's an interesting model, if model is the right word. So like when I look at the list of cities that you guys are in, so 
New Orleans, Nashville, Newark, Memphis, Stockton. Setting aside for the moment that a lot of those start with the letter N, what is it that makes those attractive cities for you to be in to create these communities that you're looking to foster? Yeah, so I think Launchpad at its core started in New Orleans in a post-Katrina world, which seems very long ago considering we're now in a post-Ira world, Ida world. But it really was about kind of, and this is Chris's, Chris's work, not mine, creating a uh, community of entrepreneurs that was focused on kind of rebuilding the notion of entrepreneurship in that city in a modern way, very similar to other places like Silicon Valley. In fact, the first one of our first big discussions when we were not even dating, I was like, you guys are smoking something if you think that New Orleans is going to be the next Silicon Valley. So there we go. But he's still stuck around. Um, Nonetheless, I think what we've seen over time through that is, is that great companies can be built anywhere. New Orleans minted a couple of pretty cool unicorns. There are, there are great companies coming out of Birmingham. There are great companies coming out of Omaha. There are great companies coming out of these cities. And I think there's a couple of things that happen, right? One is cities want to retain their best talent. And their best talent is flocking to the coast for obvious reasons. Great opportunities, great companies to work for and all of that. But at some point, some of these cities have those folks wanting to move back to raise their family. And so you have this interesting entry point of talent coming into the city. And I think that's even accelerating even more now. We're seeing our vision come to life, but we call them momentum markets. And so this was our whole thesis in 2018 was we will build this network of momentum markets. We would connect them together to help build stronger relationships and forward those ties and connection points that are really critical. Like if you think about your experience in Toronto, because you're so well connected, right? Because you have so many different folks that go back years and years and years, if you need something done, you can probably figure out how to get it done. If you need an intro to a company, you're probably one or two phone calls away from making that happen. That's the same for being in Silicon Valley. If I need to get into Google and figure something out, I'm probably one or two phone calls from getting to close to the right person to solve a problem. Those are very, very extreme privileged things that big, big cities have that little markets don't. So our vision was create a network of these little markets, help connect them, and then help give them access points to capital and brain trust on the coast. So bring the mindset and not and try and create these sort of vibrant hubs within the cities. And it works. It's great. It's a really cool homegrown thing. You see... Uh, we always get notes from people, from entrepreneurs saying like, you know, just because Launchpad was there, uh, it's a little bit of a just add water. I mean, we kind of foster the interactions and the connection points, but we really focus on a diverse and inclusive community. So we were on a really fun path, uh, had a big team, did a lot of great stuff. We were actually approaching, we had raised money and we were approaching corporate profitability and we were in the process of uh, raising our Series A. With the idea, we are also big in the opportunity zone. So with the idea of partnering, don't worry about it, it's a U.S. tax thing, probably go away. But in, with the idea that we were sort of, we would come in and be the activators of development and activator in cities that were looking to kind of replicate the impact that we had. And just to give a sense of numbers on the impact, it was at Launchpad over the last 10 years, our members have created 10,000 jobs, raised over uh, one point. One billion in venture capital. Is that right? 
and uh, at least over 1 million in square footage, right? And graduated out. So really good, good metrics and data. And so these cities wanted to replicate it, which was the model. And we were really excited about it. Boom, March, uh, we, we like left New Orleans, which is where our headquarters was with our whole team, Mardi Gras, 2020. And we got home and we came home early because we have a toddler or now at that time, 18 month old. So we came a little home a little early, missed Margaret Broad Day, which was probably one of the best moves we've ever made. And uh, the pandemic hit. And the thing about that is, I think we're gonna see the ramifications of the pandemic on commercial real estate in the long term, in the next five years. But when you operate a space that is designed for entrepreneurs and, has short-term leases within that um, because entrepreneurs need flexibility it's a very it was a very good canary in the coal mine on what's going to actually happen and shake down within the community and so we as soon as it hit it didn't matter whether that lockdown lasted six weeks or six months we knew that the business was basically fucked sorry to curse on your canadian podcast no 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 it's a, but it's an open form it's in it literally right you can't you can't help but it doesn't take a mathematician to figure out that those two things, long-term lease liabilities with short-term customers um, who are also amidst the most suffering of all of the economy, right? So, and the other piece is, is that I don't know if you noticed about our momentum market strategy was many of these communities are underserved communities. And that was another piece right. of our strategy. So we're talking about underserved communities that have little to no capital and support. A lot of our entrepreneurs are underrepresented. We have scholarship recipients and things like that. And so basically we looked at it and we were like, I don't know what to do. I'm not, I'm not in the business of shaking down small business. And yet I got landlords on the other side of the phone saying, you got to pay up. And um, we had one particular landlord in New Orleans and Memphis in our two locations. New Orleans, just to remind everyone, is our head office. It's where it all started. Uh, it's where we did our, most of our work. We didn't, I mean, Chris didn't get paid for the first like eight years of the business. And the landlord, after months and months of asking just for forbearance, because we were basically having to give, we gave over 100000 in relief to small businesses through free rent or through pausing their memberships or through allowing them out of their leases because they needed it. And we were having these conversations with the landlord around, could you just you know, give us a break? And could we maybe structure a partnership deal that works really well? And at the end of the day, they you know, showed up on a phone call and said, there's no deal. We'll see you in court and we're going to sue you for the lease. Oh, yikes. And we were like, <laughs> wait a second. We just gave you a proposal that had us paying our rent we just needed help because we know that the the door has shut on this business and they wanted to get into they wanted to get into co-working. And so they used the pandemic as an opportunity to start what is a thriving, I'm I say that sarcastically, and soulful co-working space. Uh, and so we ended up having to close down the doors to two of our locations, which was really tough. And we we all came to a very fine settlement and everybody got paid and we are basically luckily by that point I had basically furloughed most of our staff um, and so we have seen 
us recover to some extent, but just like you, people aren't really going back to the office that much. And so we're seeing a lot of interest in the market around flexible workspace, but we're seeing also a lot of lack of commitment. And that's totally understandable. As Delta rises, um, some of the markets that we're in are tough. Stockton's never gotten out of a mask mandate. Nashville also then got hit by a tornado. (laughs) They've had it rough. Um, They had a bombing. Uh, And Newark, New Jersey, you know, it's it's our strongest performing location. uh, And it's great. And it will come back. But it is slow. So all of a sudden, we've been spending the last year thinking about what does this post-fire, post-pandemic world look like for Launchpad? And, um, you know, I think we have a really good vision for the future, but it doesn't look like what it did. And so what we're doing now is kind of reworking our strategy. We're going to actually work with landlords and building owners to help them flex their own space. We're going to see the big guys figuring out how to make that a reality and they'll have to get into it. And so our job is going to be to figure that out with them. And at the same time, the landlords that we'll work with are the ones that care about the impact uh, and care about the community. And so a big piece of the work that Launchpad will do through our foundation and through just sort of the activation strategy will be to help foster these communities. And so we're going to have to rework it and retool and start again. And I think we'll just start it fresh. Wow. So it's okay. We were, we were the first golf course owner. I think it's the second one that makes the money. <laughs> <laughs> I like that narrative. Um, so let, I want to pull on a thread there about sort of fostering community. So sort of pre-COVID, how deliberate did you have to be about fostering community in these in these markets in other words was it as i'm assuming it was not as simple as oh if you just provide people a space and they just kind of you know physically gather together things are going to kind of emerge and organically generate like you must have had to have programming and mentorship and other sort of prompts in order to to develop community is that was that am i right about that was that what you had to do you have to be sort of an active community creator yeah, I think I think people think it can be as simple as a beautiful space and a beer tasting every now and then. Um, I mean, it sounds good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not bad. Maybe a pizza lunch, um, <laughs> and 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 there is an element that 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 that's table stakes, right? You've got to kind of create opportunities for people to convene. And so I think people get that part right. It's actually, I think of it very similarly to the work I did at Google, which was on on Google's culture. And it was back in the early days. A lot of people think that they can emulate Google's culture by having like a big open concept office with a coffee bar and a lot of free snacks. Throw in some ping pong Um, tables, it all takes care of itself. (laughs) That's all you need. Um, And at the end of the day, you know, I used to pull my hair out thinking, but that's not the real story. And, you know, at the end of the day, it had nothing, nothing to do with that. I did a very data-driven analysis of it across the company. And no matter where you were, what you saw was it was belief in company mission. It was empowerment. It was uh, belief in what we were actually working on and being surrounded by smart people. That's what drove the Google's, Google's culture. Um, number 15 and 16 were like perks and benefits, right? So yes, that's easy to say when you're sitting there and you, you literally have all of your needs met, uh, at any given time. Um, but 
it is, it has held true that it was always the companies that cared about how they worked um, and not where they worked that actually had the most and strongest and most successful cultures. And so when you flip that over into the community building realm, it's also very similar. You can get close if you have a really nice space and you kind of, I see a lot of architects will be like, well, you know, we need collaborative workspace. And I'm always like, that's great, fantastic. Guys, you know, and at the end of the day, you can, you can give people some guidance, but if they hear it on a podcast, they believe it. Um, and so they'll be like, well, I heard it on this podcast. And I'll say to these owners, I'll be like, well, you want to know something? You will never underwrite with five offices and an open concept with a bunch of strangers sharing community. And they're like, what? And we would, we would be deliberate about how we actually designed our spaces, which was a lot more offices than you think, because people want to close their door. People want to have privacy. People want to have meetings. And then what we would do is we would create what we call the commons. And so it was like a very open co-working type space. We wouldn't furnish it with corporate furniture. It would be just much more like living room friendly, dining room friendly, um, design centric. And the idea was we would then go out into the community and find people that were doing really amazing things that would not even be able to pay the $250 a month for that sitting at that co-working desk and we would recruit them in and so all of a sudden we had this mixture of like guys doing drilling and mining on one side a remote worker from google or github and a lawyer down the hall believe it or not and then some someone working on something cool in the arts or the culinary or doing something really interesting around uh, a startup and that mix of people starts the message and you have to be thoughtful about it and so I always say the worst thing you do is like you just open a co-working space and think people are just going to come in and work and build community but you actually have to have all those levels right. and we call it being diverse and inclusive and a lot of co-working spaces used to sort of say you had to be a founder you had to be this or you had to be that and what we found is is that by bringing people together of all different types, all different types of companies, all different types of jobs, all different types of levels and experience, you end up getting this mishmash of culture that you create when you actually go to a company. And so like, if you hmm. think about it, like back in, I, I think you're at a recruiting firm right now. Not a lot. Are you still at a lot? Oh, I'm, yeah, I can, I can never leave. I'm, I'm going to die at my desk. Right. Drafting so contracts. think about the law firm world, right? You still yeah. have a lady who comes in and like brings cookies for people, right? right. And you still right. have the IT guy that everyone's like, he's kind of weird, but like I can go talk to him. Like right. we all have these personas within any company. And what we strive to achieve at a launch pad and what I think any of these spaces needs to do is you got to have that vibe too, right? You have to have the person that you talk to at the water cooler that you would never talk to anywhere else to talk to at the water cooler. And so I find that that starts it, right? Is sort of this idea that you actually, rather than narrow your focus on what makes community, you actually broaden it. And you bring people in that wouldn't normally do because then they're surprised. And you get this like element of honest and, and people are like, I'm, I'm in awe that I'm friends with that weird sales guy over there, right. or I'm friends with that engineer. And so that starts. And then we do, we do do a series of programming and I really believe in leveraging the platform and making that accessible to the, to the community. 
So we work actively with community leaders in each of our cities to design the right programming that we don't necessarily lead. And we bring people in and we make our platform then available and that turns it into a hub. And so I think it then gets into the principles of like, are you controlling it? Is it just, if you're a flex work provider, you're like, my community manager does all this. Well, guess what? Not everybody likes your community manager. So if think of them like HR, if every event that happened at the firm was like HR, right? You never want to go to it. It doesn't matter how good (laughs) HR is. You're like, I'm not going to an effing other HR event. Right. But but. (laughs) if the, the badass guy who does entertainment law is doing a tech talk, talking about some of his best clients and some of the secrets that he's learned over his career, people are like, I'm into that. And so it's all about understanding the local community, who your assets are, i.e. all the people within your immediate world, and then how do we draw that out? And so that's our job is to kind of tease out what makes this special and then leverage the platform to help people make it something that is special. And then the other thing and the pitfall that we try to avoid is it's very easy when you have a lot of service providers who want to do things like, I'll buy pizza. And then I'll pitch my service and that works sometimes. And I'm, I'm fine with it because everybody loves some free lunch. But um, what we try to do is identify those folks who are the reluctant heroes and the ones who actually aren't talking about what they're doing, or maybe have an experience that would be really valuable and kind of help them see that this could be a platform for themselves and help them be more successful. Right. And a little bit like trying to find those magical jewels uh, and avoid just, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Right. That's really interesting because I had uh, I'll I'll confess, like when I when I first saw what you were doing, I was sort of puzzled in the sense that I was like, like, how do you build community given that much sort of variegation? Right. Like like entrepreneurs as sort of like a category, like you're covering a lot of ground there. And so I was like, oh, like you must focus in on early stage sort of companies or, or companies in a particular vertical or something. But it sounds like what you've done is you've actually realized, no, that that sort of diversity is actually the strength and you can yeah. kind of leverage that organically into, into a community. That's really interesting. I mean, it, it makes the marketing go-to-market challenge mm-hmm. way harder. And I would say if we had raised our Series A, and actually we got given this advice by an investor, potential investor. If we had raised our series A, we would be probably having to let go some of those goals in search of growth. And I think that's what we've seen play out in sort of the WeWorks and the other folks in it. They've, they've had this amazing, massive stratospheric growth. We all, we know, all, all know the gobs of money it took for them to, to do that. Right. Um, and, and what gets lost a little bit along the way is, is the, that connection point. And I often say I'm looking for nodes, not floors, which is I would rather connect a lot of cities rather than have a lot of floors in one city. And I think that also uh, strikes a chord in the fact that this new strategy that we have is really about the fact that I don't, I can't be in every city anymore. I have a kid. And when we started this business, we were like, well, let's make our business our baby. We're not having one. We can't have one. 
So uh, we can travel and we can do all these things. And a big part of our strategy has always been about events and conferences. And so giving more elevated experiences for people beyond just like the basic what you get at your location, but rather I get to go to Collision and I'm, I'm part of this bigger conference and Anne and Chris are doing something with Forbes and they're bringing us along and another member gets to do that. And so I can't do that physically anymore. So the business has to change to flex with that, uh, which is part of the whole work-life integration, like business, I don't have to always flex. Right. And so what we're trying to do is say, we need those leaders in each of our cities to then take our platform and our approach and move that in forward. And we'll do the coaching and the mentorship. And in a way we'll build that network of leaders. And then from there, we can think about whether or not we've got it to build the network of entrepreneurs. But I think we've given, we've realized that there are other things that we could spend our time on than the core operations of the business. And I think it's that activation and engagement. And then one note I just want to say, which is you said, if you narrow your focus, I think what you have to do on these platforms, if you are going to go into all different cities, is you have to be a part of the city. So in a city like Stockton, the issues that they're facing, the mayor actually recruited us there, Mayor Michael Tubbs, who's one of the leaders, leading thinkers and drivers of universal basic income, who got lost, who lost his his recent campaign to a misinformation campaign, which is just devastating for the city. But Really, what that all was, was he wants to do everything in his power to make Stockton a great place. And it was, it's literally on the 50 worst places in America list. And yet there's this thriving entrepreneurial community. And so my scholarship program that I do with them is very different. I, the, my scholarship recipients who, one of them is building a male beard management hair care product. Yes. Very different than a tech firm around real estate that we have in New Orleans. Right. Um, one of the women is doing a doula program and they have had since joining our program, you know, he went from 200 cases to 1200 cases in a matter of six months. That's amazing. Right. She mm-hmm. went from, I'm the doula to all these people to, I can't hire enough people for my demand. That's not because of us. But it's because that they came and participated and became accountable and did these things. That's super micro. And I think we need more micro in all of these markets that respond to the needs of that market. But the needs of each market are very different and their goals are very different. Amazing. So let, uh, if I could just pull the lens out a little bit here. So yeah. like when I look at your story, it all, it, like it, in a lot of ways, it makes perfect sense to me, right? Like, I mean, I knew like you're smart, you're ambitious, you're capable. Like I totally see the direct line from like the Andriscoll that I knew in 1994 to the Andriscoll that is, you know, doing what she's doing today. When you look back, are there like inflection points in your, in your path or in your career where you're like, like, oh, if this had not happened, I wouldn't be where I am today. Yeah. And funnily enough, there. I would say that I was not a pl- I didn't did not plan my career. And one of the dings I get often and I think that this is part of the female experience is I've gotten a lot and this is back when I would be work with recruiters is and we want you to fit into a box. So you should get rid of you should not focus on all these other things that you have in your experience. You should focus 
if, if it's a marketing role, you need to really focus just on the marketing side of it. And it's interesting to me because I think, and that is just a Gen X experience. I think that's different for future, future generations. But the idea that a woman who was ambitious, who was young, who had a diversity of experiences, all of that would have made me groomable for a CEO role. And yet they always wanted to put me in the marketing role. And so I like came to marketing because that was the role I just got, you know, kept doing. And ultimately I always did strategy. I always had a broader remit. I always ran sales. I always ran, ran HR for God's sakes. And so I think in my career, why that is, is because I always jumped. I, I'm, I believe that like, you got to be able to move. And my, my philosophy on life is like, you don't analyze, you move. Uh, and you need to have enough experience and knowledge and analytical skills, and I do, to very quickly analyze whether or not this is a good jump or a bad jump. And I present like I am a data-driven oriented ENTP but I am an FP off the charts. And so my whole career, I have tried to hide that part of me um, because that was not very effective in consulting. It wasn't very effective in product. Uh, in general, people like it, the, the data-driven side. They always saw the hard side of who I was in my path. But I was always willing to jump, right? So when the VP of marketing at my company went over to Google and was running this really cool company, this really cool department was the total opposite of what I wanted. I was in product. This was in people. It was about analytics. And I was like, she's like, these are the three biggest problems Google has to solve. You get to solve one of them. And I was like, great, I'm coming. And so I did that for a little while. And then I moved on and I ended up being go to market. And then I moved into a marketing and strategy and sales role and then customer service. And so I always wanted the broadest remit that I possibly could get. And that doesn't necessarily put you in a box. And so I feel like there was this period in my career where I had kind of probably reached my peak and I had choices to make, whether it was like, go work at a big company in a more narrow focused job or work at an earlier stage startup that is higher risk in a broader job. And my choice was always take the broader job. And I don't think those are the right necessarily the right decisions for everybody. Um, and I think the path that I have taken in the last five years is very different than the path that I was on for the first 20. Right. Um, and I'm okay with that. I love it. I don't think I realized what being a mother would be like uh, <laughs> and would, would be like to me. And I think, you know, I remember I was doing some consulting when I was pregnant and with a really good friend at a bank. And he was like, I can give you a full-time job. And I was like, I don't want it. And he said, well, how do you know when you give birth, you might want some security. And I was like, I'm never, it, don't worry about it. Don't, no, I don't want the secure job. I don't want, I definitely don't want to work at the bank. And he was like, you never know. And he was right. He was right. I, I didn't know who I would become after I became a mother. And I don't know who I'm going to be uh, in the next five years. And I'm actually really okay with it. For the very first time in my life, I'm like exactly where I want to be at every single minute of the moment. There are times that I'm super frustrated. I'm trying to balance, I am definitely trying to balance a big job, but 
what, sorry, this was a long way to get there, but the interesting thing around those paths are there are a lot of paths that I could have made that would have been more obvious. Um, and I don't think I would have ended up here. I think I would be a super senior level executive at some big global firm, mm -hmm. global company. And I really like who I am now more than I like who I was then, if that makes sense. So yeah. I feel like I started my career in this like super square box. I was a consultant. I mean, I wore hose and skirt suits. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And then I moved to San Francisco and all of a sudden I felt like I shed a little bit of like that restrictive Queens University commerce, like very, very Toronto narrow perspective. Right. And then I ended up at Google and that was like very in its own way, really broadening, but also really narrow. Like it was very, very uh, uniform. And, it, and so I just feel like I've been getting smaller and smaller and smaller and happier and happier and happier. And my life has been getting bigger and bigger. And so right. I think that's where we are. And what I would say is there's no way I could have charted my path here. It's just because I made, made moves that felt right at the time. And they really were felt right, not analytically right, if that makes sense. And so I've been lucky uh, and I've been unlucky, but I am very happy and I wouldn't want to be anywhere but here. That's amazing. And so, so you, to, you, you actually preempted one of the questions I was going to ask, which was what sort of where do you see yourself five or 10 years from now? So let, let's avoid that question and let me ask this because what I, what I, sort of drew from that description that you just provided is a big component of you getting to where you are now and being happy about it is embracing risk. It sounds like, is that yeah. fair to say? Like, do you sort of think of yourself as a risk taker? Would you, would you counsel other people to sort of be bigger risk takers than they are? Yeah. Um, so I think if I'm being objective, yes, we are risk takers. I mean, we're considerate, we're thoughtful, we're analytical. It doesn't mean that we're risky, but the idea of risk doesn't frighten me. And I think I'm actually probably more comfortable with it and more comfortable in those states than I am in actually like the plotting of not being risky. Right. Uh, I think a lot of people underestimate the importance of being open and taking on risks and calculated risks. No one should no one should risk their shirt. No one should go deep into credit card debt. No one should just, you know, flagrantly go out there and do whatever. I'm not talking about risky behavior. I'm talking about taking calculated risks to help yourself get to what you truly want. Right. And the reason why I say that is because I think a lot of people spend their time focused in, I mean, your job, mitigating risk and never moving. And I think it's important while you can mitigate risk, I tell a story often, and we actually talk about this, a friend of ours often, is, you know, lots and lots of resources available to them. So want for nothing, would really love a home somewhere, a vacation home, and can't, haven't made the move. And we're like, well, why don't you just get in the market? Why don't you just try? And now as time goes on, the vacation home that could have been good for them, like somehow gets bigger and bigger and bigger and grander and grander and grander and grander and grander. And now all of a sudden it's a $7 million vacation home. And you're like, why don't you just buy something small and, and grow with it? And if you don't like it, sell it. And it's, 
it's that risk of movement and risk of actually optimizing for what you want in life mm-hmm. um, is the thing that I think holds a lot of people back. And so if you can figure out how to take steps towards what you really want, I don't think of it as risky, but I definitely think of it as achieving things and doing that earlier rather than later. Don't wait. Um, we're actually here celebrating uh, Chris's, un- Chris's uncle who married us. He passed away from COVID two weeks before he was eligible to get one of the earliest vaccines. So this, oh, wow. and we're having a celebration of life. And one of his stories is, uh, and when he said at our wedding is when Chris's dad passed, he said, stay close. And then uncle Ted added, don't wait. Uh, and then he ran it out with keep moving. And, you know, I feel like a lot of times in the sense of risk, we actually risk making changes that are really positive because we're so worried about mitigating risk. And I think that's a big challenge. And so it actually is what we're talking about, by the way, you did ask about the next five years. I don't know where that's gonna take us, but something that we thought about consciously at the beginning of this year was, I don't wanna end this year of COVID licking my wounds, having done nothing, having lost half our business, and feeling like we're depressed. We just consciously knew that. And Chris had that pattern experience of in a post-Katrina world. A lot of people ended up with drug problems. A lot of people ended up with deep depression and a lot of people ended up divorced. And you know, I think that is likely going to be a scenario that we'll see and the fallout will not be this year. It'll be next year. It'll be the year after. And so we really consciously said, how do we spend the next year like, figuring out what is our best life. He's writing a book. Um, the book is called Analog. You could have him on if you want. I would love uh, to. Whenever it comes out. And it's all about the fact that we can find purpose and meaning in our life through agency. And so this idea, and this is like our whole spirit of entrepreneurship. All we talk about is be an entrepreneur so that you control your destiny, right? An agency could be anything. It could be, I'm going to, work at a high powered law firm until I'm 50 and then I'm going to peace out and that's going to give me all of the things that I want to do. Or I can be an Uber driver so that I can actually support myself leaving the workforce and I can create art or I'm going to start a software business or whatever that case is. But the idea is, is that agency is around how you determine what blocks of time in your life are spent doing what. And it's a, It's certainly a privileged position to have agency, but I think most of us have the ability to do it. And through that, you know, we want to create experiences where we bring kind of that analog lifestyle and say, how do you actually use our program or our approach to this and find joy in offline experiences? And through that joy, actually start having conversations around where you would find more joy. And then how do you incorporate just like you say, you know, travel, travel is not hobby. Travel is your joy, right? Travel is your outlet. It's the place you see the world. It's the place you expand. It's the place you meet people. It's a place that you get to be someone totally different than you are every single day. Don't, don't underestimate that. Make that core to your being. I mean, and as we look in a post COVID world, the benefit we have is guess what the most traditional industries in the world are realizing that a nine to five, seven day, five day away week work week, but in seat, that's how you get measured, 
is going to go away. And right. as top talent says, I'm not doing it anymore, top firms will recruit top talent and will have to provide that flexibility. That opens up the most amazing opportunities for people like you who could say, you know what, we're going to go and we're going to go live somewhere else for two months and we're going to work virtually and we've proven that we can. And I know that I got to get on that plane and be in the office for certain things or be there for a case. But we're changing the mindset in one year of what would have taken 20 years for some of the most traditional industries. And once they topple, all of a sudden this world and this idea that we have to do what our parents did or what we were told we had to do or what the baby boomers who smoked, who did all the coke in the 80s, like we get to write finally, we're in charge, Bob. Like we are finally in charge for like one minute before those millenniums come and take everything away from us. But we have one minute of charge. Like we should be designing our next 20 years of our career. We should be finding out agency and we should be figuring out what are those risks we take to make us feel joy, feel success, feel connected and integrate kind of what we do in our work and the passions that we have around us. Amazing. I love that message of like embracing agency and and being deliberate about finding that agency and actually acting on it and embracing the risk. And it, look, I'll be honest here. Like it, it makes me super happy to see, to see you a, but also just to see how sort of comfortable you are in your own skin and and happy and and successful and kudos to you and and your, uh, your, a bit of an inspiration. So thanks so much for, I, for coming I mean, on here and sharing that story. Well, thank you. It's amazing. That took a long time too. Um, divorce is a really good helper on that. You can <laughs> avoid that. It's a, it's a lot cheaper to get therapy. <laughs> I love it. All right. Next installment. So that was great. Yeah. Thanks so much. And really appreciate you taking thank the time. You. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode. If you like this podcast, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, liking it, sharing it with your friends, or inflicting it on your enemies. If you're still listening, you're probably the only one who's doing so. The secret number is 42. To claim your no prize, send an email with the secret number in the subject line to bob at bobgotamicrophone.com.